0: Turn your Bibles again to John, 1 John, that is, chapter 4, as we continue with our worship, with our text and our sermon for this morning. A certain medieval monk announced he would be preaching next Sunday evening on the love of God. As the shadows fell and the light ceased to come, are coming through the cathedral windows, the congregation gathered. In the darkness of the altar, the monk lit a candle and carried it to the crucifix. First he illuminated the crowns of thorns. Next, the two wounded hands. Then the marks of the spear wound. In the hush that fell, he blew out the candle and left the chancel. There was nothing else to say. That spoke volume enough for this medieval monk about God's love for his own. Let me warn you, unlike this medieval monk, I will not be showing you these symbols, and there will be much, much more to be said about God's infinite love. It's a topic that is unmatched when it comes to words. It's, as the songwriter said, if you make the entire Water body on this planet, ink, and every single human being ascribe it still isn't enough. The sky's parchment, it's still insufficient to write the love of God for His own. I also must say, Jason and I did not sit down and collude and say, When I finish Romans chapter 8, verse, you can go right into. First John chapter four, verse seven to 12. "We didn't do it. This is all in God's providence, and it's all so perfect and so amazing. John already addressed this topic in terms of the love of God in John chapter two, First John chapter two, verses seven to 11, as an indication of one who is walking in the light. And in chapter three, first John chapter three, verses eleven to twenty-four, this same topic, love, loving one another, God's love, is an evident or is evidence that one is a child of God. Now in chapter four, verses seven to twenty-one, and we'll just look at chapter seven verses seven and to twelve this morning. John takes us to the very source of love. Why should we, how can we love one another in the manner in which God prescribes in chapter 2 and chapter 3? It's because of the source of this love, the origin of this love, and that obviously is God himself. Not in the sense that God discovered love. That's not what John Will be trying to present here that oh God discovered love, but that God, by His very nature, is love, which He'll make emphatic, stated, state emphatically in this passage that we're going to look at. This love, as we will see, was put on full display in the cross of Jesus Christ, the everlasting hallmark of the infinite, matchless, unfathomable love of God was on full display for us. Beloved, he says in verse 7, Let us love one another. Why? Because, or for, love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. Why? So that we, so that you and I might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Father God, I pray you will take your words and make them indelible in our minds, in our hearts, that we will never forget, Lord, and that we will use your words, as the psalmist says, so that we might not sin against you, but not only that, Lord, so that we will recall The length you went through, especially as we look at a text like this that is so rich, the length you went through to display your love for us. God, I pray for our hearts, that our hearts will be receptive to what will be said. I pray for every individual here that will hear the utterances of these words God, I pray that you will use me as your mouthpiece to present your truth to your people. Encourage hearts, rebuke, refute, exhort through your word. Convict and convince by your spirit through your word. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who has not accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, who hasn't come to any form of realization what God love really is to them. God, I pray that today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, but today will be that day when, through your Spirit and the power of your Word, convict their hearts and transform them so that they too will know for sure what the love of God really is. That they too will abide in the love of God as he abides in them. Use me, Lord, and take your words, minister to our hearts. God, may none of us leave this place the same way in which we came, that we will be more encouraged, that we will come to th- that much closer to the Christians that you expect us, expect us to be. For Christ's sake. Amen. God's infinite love. And the first point that I want to highlight for us this morning as we look at God's infinite love is love's foundation. Love's foundation where the love come from where did love originate from the word love as used by John it's a predominant word that he he uses in first John and even in the book the Gospel of John but in John first John chapter four verses four verses seven to chapter five verse three he uses this word agape quite often it appears over thirty times And some even went to the extreme and said, John is the expert on the subject of love. He's the expert on that. Just as some would deem Paul the expert on the subject of faith, Peter, who is the expert on hope, James, the expert on good works, that is an outflow of your faith in Christ. John is seen as the expert or the apostle of love. There is little doubt we need an expert on love. In other words, we do need an expert on love as humanity. We claim it, we use it, it's, an, it's a cliche as is described, but it's a word that is meaningless in so many spheres and in so many circles, it has Little to no meaning whatsoever. So yes, in our culture, in our society, we do need an expert on love. Too often misunderstood. It's selfish. It's sensual. The Word of God paints a completely different picture of what love actually looks like, what love is, in comparison with the world in which we live in. As is seen in God's word love is sacrificial as is seen in God's word love is supernatural and those are the two main words that jump out at us when we read God's word and analyze it in the context of love it's sacrificial it's supernatural ultimately love's love comes from God and is seen most clearly and obviously in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross as he takes on himself, as we just sung, the sins of the world. Now, to be clear, we are not saying, and I am not saying, that lost people, those who are unregenerate, those who are unsaved, Non-Christians cannot love. And sadly, sometimes they love better than Christians. Their actions love better, not in a godly sense, not in the biblical sense, but they display some semblance of love better than most Christians do. Never forget that all people, all human beings are created in the image of God, they're some kind of image bearer, or they have the image, they are image bearers rather of God. All people, despite their depravity, despite their sinfulness, will give some reflection as one who is the image bearer of God. And furthermore, God's grace and God's goodness is shared in some measure with the entirety of His creation. I. Howard Marshall says it correctly. Human love, however noble and however highly motivated, falls significantly short if it refuses to include the Father and the Son as the supreme object of its affection. That's the issue with the world in which we live and the love that they're displaying. It falls significantly short of a love that is displayed in the eyes of the father and the son such love unfa- unfortunately fails to honor the greatest commandment love one another love god with all your heart with all your soul with all your might again the unsaved the unregenerate man cannot do this because they have not experienced that kind of love and they god is not the object Of their love. So you may ask, why should why should we love one another? John, why should we love one another? You talked about this earlier in your writings. But why? Why should we do it? What is the premise for our love towards our brothers and sisters in Christ? We do this, folks, because loving others is evidence that you are born of God right there in the text loving others is evidence that you are born of God whoever loves has been born of God and knows God so in other words loving others is a divine affection love John says is from God this means that love's come love comes from God And God is its source. He's the author of it. He's the creator of it. God himself is love. It's his very nature. And whoever loves is demonstrating to others, he's demonstrating to the world that, hey, this is how you know that I love differently from the world. Because God's love is being displayed through me. This is how we tell the world. This is how we show the world that we are born from above. You demonstrate to the world that you indeed are a new creation, as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's a regenerate affirmation. So in other words, we love one another because we tell the world and we're displaying to the world that we are new beings, we're a new creation in God. This cannot mean that everyone that loves his wife, loves his children, his classmate, his friends, his business partners, his house, his farm, and so on. This doesn't mean that they're a child of God. That that should be obvious to us. It doesn't mean that everyone that displays love for individuals or certain things are born from above. A man may have a great deal of natural affection towards his or her kindred, a great deal of benevolence in his character towards the poor and the needy, and still he may have None of the love to which John is referring to. He may not have the real love towards God, towards the Savior Jesus Christ, or to the children of God. And to argue that this person is a believer because they love would be an absolute absurdity. Because they love others and they do good things. Again, the society in which we live. Here it is, only those born of God can experience and impart the love that John is displaying and John is talking about here. Only those born of God. Because love is the very nature of God, because God is love. God's children take on the character trait of their father. God's children takes on and impersonate Imitate their father, Ephesians 5, one. Because, folks, of God's infinite love, the natural response from one who has been born of God is to love. John says, if God so loved us, and that if is not a third-class conditional cause, meaning it's a possibility that God doesn't, It's a first-class conditional call, which means he does. So in other words, because God so loved us, or since God so loves us, what's the natural response? What's the natural outflow? And God, by the way, continually continues to love us and to demonstrate that love towards us by natural response, then, those who are born of God loves each other, loves one another. So brothers, what John is saying is this, as once born of God, renewed by the Spirit or renewed in the Spirit, regenerated by the Spirit of God, this love, this divine affection ought to become second nature to us. We love others the same way God loves us. And as once we get an understanding of the love of God for us, until we get that understanding, we cannot love others as we ought, even in the context of marital, in the context of marriage. When we get an an understanding, a good grasp, of how much God really loves us, we cannot but display that very same love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love is from God the same way, and I love this quote from John Piper. Love is from God the same way heat is from fire, or the way light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature It is woven into who he is. It's a part of what it means to be God. The sun gives light because it is light. Fire gives heat because it is heat. So John points, is that the new birth, this aspect of divine nature becomes a part of who you and I are. It should be a part of our very nature. The new birth is the imparting to you of divine life. And an indispensable part of that is God's love. God's nature is love. And in the new birth, that nature becomes a part of who you are. So when you are born again, he continues to say, God himself is imparted to you. Think on that for a moment. When you have been regenerated, God himself has been imparted to you. He dwells in you and sheds this love abroad in your hearts. And his aim is that this love is to be perfected in you. Notice the phrase, his love, in verse 12. The love that you have been, you have, has, the love that you have has been a born-again person. It's not a mere imitation of a divine love. It's an experience of divine love and an extension of that love towards others. End quote. Loving others is not just evidence folks that we are born of God but it's evidence that we know God. We know God. You show that you know God personally. You show that you know God intimately. Remember Jason's sermon about the word using the Hebrew yada that is showing the world when we display love towards others we are showing that we know God and we know that God is love. This is an ongoing habit. This is your way of life. Remember 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called, that you should be called children of God. The positive affirmation is seen in the latter part of verse 7. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows knows God. However, there's a negative aspect to this. So, if you're born of God, it shows you know God. If you know God, you're born of God. But there's a negative aspect to this in verse 8, and also a warning. John says, Anyone who does not love by default does not know God. Because God is love. So, if your life is not characterized, by this divine affection by the infinite love of god then by default you do not know god and by implication you have not been born of god and further implication is you deceive yourselves god's is love it means he seeks the best for others even at a great Expense, or I would add the greatest expense, the cost of himself, his son. God is love is not saying the same thing, love is God. It's not the same thing. It might seem like and sound like the same thing. God is love is not the same thing as love is God. Why is that not the same thing? Because the world, you look at the world and they say they love. In every context, I won't even go into painting pictures for you, but they say they love. Love does not define God, it doesn't. God defines love. God is the one who defines love. So here is. John's logic, God is love. Those who have been born of God and know God are children of God. God's children then have God's nature, has his nature, a part of his nature. Therefore, God's children will love. That's the logic John is trying to drive home they will love as god loves and in so doing we give evidence to others that we have been affected by the love source itself himself that we are partakers of this divine affection through the spirit that indwells us we love you love because god is the source of love that's why you love he is the foundation of our love. He is the foundation of love. What about love's affirmation? How do we know that God's, God loves us? How can we prove that God loves us? Verses 9 and 10. In this is love, or in this the love of God rather was made manifest among us. How? God just tells us that we do, we need to take it at face value, take him at his word, live our lives. No. It was made manifest to us in this, that God sent, God gave his only son, sent his only son into this world, So that we might live through him. And when I read this and I was preparing, I couldn't help but call to mind, and I'm sure we all are familiar with this song. The popular children's song, Yes Jesus Loves Me, The Bible Tells Me So. That's the song that came to mind. And why am I presenting this song and seemingly in a negative connotation. Though it is true that the Bible tells us that God loves us, and the Bible tells us that Jesus loves us, it does more than just tell us, folks. It demonstrates God's love towards us. And I don't know the context of the song and the origin of the song if it That's embedded in there if it's an implication that God's love isn't just told to us in Scripture, but it's demonstrated to us. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that, but in any sense, it doesn't just tell us that God loves us. It demonstrates that love for us. The Bible shows us how God really loves us. The Bible is not just words or God's word, but an affect, it's an action. It's of God's action. It doesn't just tell us what God says, but it tells us what God does. Hence why he is described as actively involved in the affairs of humanity. He is not just sitting out there watching things unfold and leaving it to run by chance. There is no greater proof, Westmount, there is no greater proof of how to love than what is shown in the word of God. When God sent his one and only son for us, God sent his only son, Hawaii, in order that we might live. That's what John says, that folks is love. And we are reminded of this. Throughout the entirety of Scripture, Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his love. God shows us how he loves us by sending Jesus Christ. Again, Jason looked at that. This love of God was put on full display among us, John says. It was made manifest to us. We saw it. We didn't just hear about it, John said. It wasn't just word of mouth. It wasn't just passed from ear to ear. We saw it. It was demonstrated towards us. We are eyewitness of these things. We are eyewitnesses of the love of God. God sent his one and only son into this world. So that we might live through his only son. Through Jesus Christ. The word used or the phrase... Or the word rather, God sent is only, that word only, is used five times in the New Testament in reference to Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 verse 14, chapter 1 verse 18 of John, as again, John 3 16, very, very familiar passage of scripture to us. John chapter 3 verse 18, and of course here, 1 John four verse nine. So used five times and obviously used by the same author. It means it means unique. It means one of a kind. So in other words, God sent him Son, his one and only Son. There's no other like him, folks. I don't think that has been expressed enough. In fact I know it's been expressed over and over in this church that there is no one else like Jesus Christ one and only son there's no other there's no comparison of course he's not like Allah of course he's not like Buddha he's not like any other there's no comparison that's the uniqueness of the son of God and that's who God sent for you and I no one else like him And again, John 3.16 just keeps ringing in our ears. For God so loved the world that he gave his unique, one-of-a-kind son. So you can translate when you read that he sent his one-of-a-kind, no other like him son into this world. The eternal God sent his eternal son. In the likeness of human flesh. The eternal divine God. The foundation of love. Sent his son. Spotless lamb of God. Into this sin infested world. The world that wants nothing to do with God. At the time of Jesus' arrival. Before Jesus' arrival. And even more so today. God sent his unique eternal son, spotless lamb, into this sin-sick world, into this godless world. Why did he do that, folks? To demonstrate his love for us. He came to rescue us. He came to rescue to deliver you from the bondage of sin, from the sin that infested this entire globe. To rescue you so that you and I can abide in him and he abides in us. He sent his son into this world so that you can have life and have it more abundantly. To have eternal life. Why did God do this? Why have you thought and thought on that? Why did God send his son into this world? Why? Was it worth it? Why did he send his son into this world? Sin-sick, godless world such as ours. We were dead. Walking corpse. As Paul puts it. In Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 3. Dead trespasses and sin. And God saw that we needed life. God saw that you and I needed life. And that life isn't going to come through any single thing that we can do on this planet. We can't earn it. And he sent his only son into this world so that we can live through him. Even while we were dead, dead in trespasses and sin, God at the right time sent his one of a kind, one and only son into this world for us. So that we might live, so that you might be called sons of God. This is why God sent him, so that you might be born of God, so that you might know God, so that you might experience God's infinite love dispersed in your hearts, expressed through the church, to your brothers and sisters in Christ and expressed through this entire community throughout Canada and the entire world. God sent Westmount his only son so that you might enjoy fellowship with the triune God. That's why he sent his son. Fellowship with one another. We can confess sins as we saw earlier in the book. We can receive forgiveness for grace, we experience the mercy of God. As Jeremiah said, they're new every single morning. You open your eyes. That, folks, is infinite love. That's why God sent his son into this world. He sent his son so we can walk in newness of life. Why is that significant? Because once upon a time, we walked according how? To the prince of the power of the air, which is a fancy way of Paul saying, You walked according to how the devil wants you to walk. You are living, as Jason put, in the Adamic state. But God sent his son so that now we are walking in newness of life. We are walking in the light. We are no longer children and men and women of darkness, but we are children of light. God sent his son So that we can abide in his word, so that we can abide in his will, so that you and I can know the truth and be confident that Jesus Christ, the unique son of God, is coming again while we eagerly wait in anticipation and not shy away as John tells us of his coming. Not in fear because, oh my goodness, the judge, the king of the world is coming back. And my heart isn't right with him. Which, by the way, if you're here, you should still shy away. You should still fear that day. But God's grace is still open for you. And you can be saved. You can still receive his son. God sent his son. God demonstrated his love towards us. That by sending his son so that you and I can be victors over sin. And we are victors. We have the victory in Christ Jesus. Westmount, that is infinite love. That is God's infinite love. I must put this out there. We are on the topic... That a sin-sick world loves to encrouch on. And I wouldn't do justice if I don't say this. God's love, and it's not going to come as a surprise to you, so don't worry. God's love does not mean that he approves of sin and that we can live however we want. That's the way of the world. And again, they do not know the true love of God. So of course you're going to say love is God. And that means I can live however I want. No. It defeats the purpose of him sending his son, his only son, his unique son, to die for that very sin that you're wallowing in. Doesn't make any sense, does it? No, it doesn't. God sent his son so that we might live. But he also sent his son, so that he would die. That's how we got life. His death, his dying breath, the song says, has brought me life. I know that it is finished. This is one of the most wonderful and most important verses. They're all important. They're all equally inspired. But this is such a wonderful verse in the passages of Scripture. It notes the initiative God took in demonstrating his love for us. And it addresses the magnitude of that love in the gift of his son. Remember, God didn't send an angel. There are myriads of those in heaven he didn't send an angel. He sent his son. He didn't just send his son to live and show us how to live, which he did. But he sent his son to show us how to live and die. And he show, and sent him to die in our place. No ordinary death. Nor was it a simple death? Nor was it a death of a martyr. Oh, he was a good martyr, champion of the faith. It was the death of a Savior dying in our place, bearing our punishment, bearing your punishment. John says, this is love. He loved us before we loved him. God proved his love for us by sending Jesus Christ. God sent him to be an atoning sacrifice for sin. And the word that John uses, we saw it earlier, is the word propitiation, used three times, three other times rather, outside of this context, in the New Testament, and in reference to Jesus' death on the cross. Romans 3 25, Hebrews 2 verse 17. And we saw it in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. This word means the turning away or turn away of the wrath of God by the means of an offering. The turning away of God's wrath by the means of an offering. In ancient times, pagan religion, human worshippers made the offering to appease an angry deity The New Testament knows nothing of this. In Christ, God himself made the satisfaction. God himself made the atonement as he offered himself and his son. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And the fact that God provides the satisfaction himself teaches us several truths about God. Propitiation teaches us that God personally hates sin. So those plaques that you see with the multicolored group that say, oh, Jesus is love. Well, if they really realize that Jesus is love, they would realize, well, he hates this sin that I'm wallowing in and i'm tolerating it teaches propitiation teaches that god hates sin it teaches us also that god sin is a serious matter that needs to be dealt with it teaches us the greatness of god's love in which he provided the offering that turned away his wrath from our sins it teaches us that christ's death satisfied, fully satisfied, appease the wrath of a righteous God in his substitutionary death. It also teaches us that God's holiness requires satisfaction and that God's love provides that satisfaction. Tim Keller reminds us, the gospel is that Jesus lived the life You should live. Die the death that you should have died. In your place. So so God can receive you. Not for your record. And for your sake. But for the record of his sake. Jesus died the death you should have died. Jesus died the death that I should have died. He died in my place. He lived the life that you and I are called to live, that we cannot live and could not live outside of him. But it's all for this glory and honor of God, not for you. This, folks, is love, God's infinite love, put on full display for the world to see. That's how much you're loved, Westmount, and I really hope you realize and come to that Recognition, if you haven't yet, and I hope you have, that's how much you were loved. God sent His only Son. So we saw love's foundation. We saw the affirmation of love. God sending His only Son, His unique Son, into this world. Love's completion, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Love's completion. Love has its origin in God. God demonstrates his infinite love towards us by sending his only son as an atoning sacrifice for us. So let me ask you this, Westmount. When your brothers and sisters in Christ looks at you, can they see God's love in you? Do they see God's love in you? Does the world look at you, a believer, one who has been born of God, and sees God's infinite love just oozing out of you, shed abroad, as Paul tells us in your hearts. Jesus Christ reminds us that the world will know, John 13, 35, the world will know that we are his disciples. How? By coming to church every single Sunday morning and Wednesday night when the doors are open. No. The world will know that we are his disciples By our love for each other. He also reminds us that we must love our enemies. Pray for those that persecute us. Which is of course easier said than done if we're being honest. So yes, Westbound, the world will label us. And they have labeled us and the labels continue to grow. They will label us as insensitive. They will label us as hypocrites. They will label us as judgmental. And yes, they even will label us as homophobic. And the list goes on and on and on. But the question that I want to ask is, are they right? Are we insensitive? Are we hypocrites? Are we judgmental? Are we homophobic? Not in the sense that we're hating the sinful lifestyle of these individuals and tolerating it. But are they seeing something that is counter to what God wants them to see in us? Is what the world's seeing in us no different than what they're already seeing out there? Is the question really. Trying to remember the date, but when my great aunt who raised all seven brothers—we I I have well had six other brothers—one passed away in 2020. She raised all seven of us, and after her passing in 2004, I rededicated my life, going back to the church that I grew up in as a little boy, going there with her, Sunday morning after Sunday morning, and decided, this is it, I'm going to surrender my all to Christ. And things were going great until the criticism started to come in. I wasn't doing anything sinful, per se, in terms of being promiscuous or sexual immorality, just being labeled because, one, I'm a male, and two, of where I'm from, my community, it was a very hostile, still is, very hostile community, even to date, and, oh, he's from there. Nothing good will amount from him, et cetera. And it got discouraging, folks. I went to church faithfully every Sunday still, but depressed and discouraged because I'm like, I, I didn't expect this. As a young Christian rededicating my life, I didn't expect this. I thought, this is a church. From what I've heard, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. They're going to accept you and love you, shower that love on you unconditionally. And man, did I ever experience something different. And I'm like, if they're treating me like this, how would they treat an outsider, one who isn't in Christ, one who isn't saved? And it got discouraging to the point where it was so evident. My pastor came to me one Sunday and he's like, you're not the same you're not jovial, you're not outgoing, you're, you're, you're sitting, you're reserved as the benediction ends. You're out the door and you're home before the first person exits the door. What's going on? And I told him, and he said to me, brother, don't let that discourage you. I'm the pastor here, I've been here however many years. I still to this day have people who sidestep me. Or go through the side door just to avoid me for no reason whatsoever. Folks, we're the church. We're God's children. Would you walk into a church and stay in that church if that's what you see on display? If this is how God demonstrated his love for you, would you be here this morning? Would you be sitting here Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday night, through the conferences, Saturday mornings, Wednesday mornings, would you be labeled a believer? If that's what you see, why am I saying this? Yes, things got better at my home church, just to leave it on a positive note. It didn't stay that way, praise be to God. But what I'm saying is, folks, what's the world seeing? What are other believers seeing how we're using and how we're exhibiting to them the infinite love of God. How are they seeing that? And with that being said, you might be thinking, "Oh, do you feel that way like your old church with us?" No, the love I feel for this from this church is unbelievably overwhelming. And I say that unapologetically, and I'm not trying to, to get on your good side. I mean that. I mean that, folks. But we are of not, we're not there yet. There's always work for us to do, am I right? There's always more. There is always growing to be done in our faith. God expects you and I to put his love on display for the world to see. When we were in darkness, God sent his light. When we were dead, God sent us life. When we were in sin, God sent his sinless son. When we were in despair, God sent his love. For the second time in the passage, John refers to the the brothers and sisters as dear friends. He wants them to build on what he was already has already told them in verse seven to ten, but even beyond that. if God loves you in this way, and he does look at the cross of Christ, then we ought naturally out of gospel gratitude, out of. Our sheer connection with the foundation of love, the source of love, ought also to love those who are in Christ Jesus. I want to read John 17, verse, first, our book of St. John 17, verse 26, just one verse. Extremely helpful when we're considering this text before us. I made known to them your name. This is Christ, of course, in his high priestly prayer. And I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I've made known to them your name, the name of God the Father. And I will continue to do this. Why? So that the love which you have loved me, the love that you have for me, your one and only son, might be in them. Might be in those who will abide in me, who will be called by my name, who will be born from above. Who will be deemed sons and daughters of God. So since God loves us this way by sending his son for us, Westmount, by default, you who are born of God, sanctified by God, redeemed by God, ought to live a life of love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. Of course, there is a love that implies death. And we've touched on that. But it's also implied the fact that God loves never ceases for us. That's an implication. So there cannot be conditional clauses to your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because God doesn't put a conditional clause on his love for you. God never said, I'm going to love you up to this extent. But when it gets to this point, I'm going to stop. He doesn't put a conditional clause on it. That's the love that is expected from us. We ought also to love each other the same way God loves us. And why not? Why not? After all, we are his seed. Are we not? 1 John 3, verse 9. And his spirit, 1 John three twenty four, is in us. So why not love as Christ, as God commands us to love? John ends this portion in a rather unexpected manner. The word seen is from the Greek word, which means theater. We get our word theater from it. And it implies, because he said, no one has seen God. The word implies a careful observation, a close scrutiny or examination. No person has seen God up close and person. Of course, there's an exception clause to that in the person of Jesus Christ. In his unveiled essence, in his glory, in his majesty. To do so, of course, would certainly be to our death in the Old Testament, on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 32, verse 22, 23, and Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, only saw what theologians describe as theophanies of God, which are visions or revelations of God. They could not see and handle this. They barely could without being consumed by the awesomeness of God, if I can put it that way. If they beheld much more, you remember when Moses went up Mount Sinai? His face was glowing so much, he had to put a veil over it. And that glow caused so much fear in the children of Israel. Man, if that's what happened to you, how awesome is this God? John's argument takes a beautiful turn. No one has seen God in his essence. But, but we can see God through the lives of those who demonstrate his love for others. John Stott says, Mutual Christian love is the evidence that the unseen God who was once revealed in his son is now revealed in his people. When they love one another. That's what John states when he says love one another. It's proof that God's abides in us continually. His love, his infinite love is perfected. It's made complete. It's brought to maturity in us when we love each other. It's reach, it reaches its intended goal when we show love towards one another. I can love others as God loves me because he lives in me. That's one implication. The second is, His love will reach its intended goal when I display that love towards others, my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a wonderful theological circle of truth, folks, that cannot and should not be broken. He is the source, he is the maintenance, and it's perfection, love. It's all of God. It's all from God from the beginning. The world, as it's custom, as I said, takes love, takes this word, and utterly distorts it as they do everything else. That's just our sinful nature on display right there. They lay the claim, the world lay the claim, they should be left alone because God is love. And in some sense, they are right. They're right in the fact that God is love. How they understand that is another story in and of itself. But they are so wrong in thinking that God's love, God's love for them, allow them to live a lifestyle outside of what he has prescribed for them. And that applies here in the church as well. You are so wrong, sincerely wrong if you believe That God's love for you, this infinite love for you demonstrated through his Son, allows you to live a lifestyle that is outside of the prescribed lifestyle according to his word. The world needs God's infinite love. They need the affirmation of God's love through Christ. They need to see God's love on display in us as believers, they need to experience this love, real love, supernatural love, sacrificial love, infinite love of God. The world needs it. They need that transforming love, folks. The, word, the love that will say, I'm going to take this thief and turn them into someone who gives for the glory of God. That's what the world needs. And Westmount, you and I are the channel through which many will see this love. You and I are the channel through which many will see and experience God's infinite love. And this love has to flow from the pulpit, from the pews, throughout this entire nation. And never, ever forget, Westmount, never forget. I don't know your state. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if you feel as if God has deserted you. You may feel like his love was indeed conditioned. When you go through a crisis, you're on your own. Sorry, can't help you there. But never forget, never forget, Z read for us, John chapter 15, verse 9. Again, just taking you back there to remind you of what that text of Scripture says. John 15 verse 9. As the Father loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So has the Father loved me. Folks, the same love that God has for His unique only son is the same love that God has for you never forget that jesus goes on to say there's no greater love anyone can display than one to lay down his life for his friends jeremiah 31 verse 3 i have loved you with a conditional clause love no that's not what the passage says i have loved you with an everlasting how long is everlasting everlasting it's eternal i've loved you with an eternal love that folks is god's infinite love never forget that and again i'm appealing if you're here you're not saved i encourage you don't leave without fully experiencing this infinite love of god in your life surrender your lives to him And let him transform you. Let him abide in you. So that you too can be one who demonstrates God's infinite love to the sin sick world that we live in.